Good morning. Happy Lord's Day, everyone. This is uh, every, every Sunday we stop our lives as we ought to and just um, think about the Lord and think about the things that He's done for us and learn more about Him. So what we're doing today is we are continuing. Uh, I only went halfway through Module 2, Session 9, uh, the second part of Pneumatology, um, the Spirit in the New Testament. And I want to focus exclusively on spiritual gifts today. And so that's what we'll do. Why don't we pray and then we'll get our Lord's Day started. Our Father, it is a beautiful day, not because of the weather, not because of circumstances, but it is a beautiful day because this is the day that the Lord has made. And we will rejoice and be glad in it. And this is the day that our Savior, Jesus Christ, conquered death and was raised from the dead by the power of the Spirit, by the power of the Father, and by His own power. And so we gather today in honor of our Savior Christ. We gather today to love one another. We gather today to learn of you, to focus our thoughts and affections solely on our God this day. And I pray that this beginning time, Lord, would help us to do that, such that at the end of the day, as we lay our heads on our pillows tonight, we would thank you for this Lord's Day and for filling our hearts richly with the word of truth. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. Okay, well, I wanted to just kind of stop last week so that we would have plenty of time today to go through um, spiritual gifts. And I, I don't know if we'll finish this part today. We'll, we'll do our best, but I'm not in a hurry um, because this is a big topic. And I may try and even take some questions um, if we have time at the end. Um, and if we don't have time, I'll probably take questions anyway and then finish up next week. I, I just don't want to hurry through this because we only get to this every couple of years. And this is one of, um, I don't know, 10 or 12 topics I have in my mind that just need to be taught over and over and over again in the church. Because by the time we get around to it again, there's new people who are, who are coming in confused about this particular issue. And so, um, as a matter of fact, one of our hopes down the road is that our Sunday school hour, when we have more space, that we have one or two uh, classes devoted to a rotating system of uh, specific topical studies that we just want to always be hitting on. So um, this is one of them. So I, I want to take our time here and talk about the gifts of the Spirit. Now, this is a, a gigantic topic. Many, many books have been written on this. I just want to hit a, a few highlights to start with based on our doctrinal statement. And then what I'm going to do is go through a bunch of uh, digressions, just kind of uh, random topics that I think will help us understand this. So first of all, just, just hitting a few highlights here. What's the purpose of the spiritual gifts? Well, the purpose of spiritual gifts is to empower the church to cooperate. To empower the church to cooperate with God, to serve one another, and be light and salt in the world. Let me clarify one word here, uh, the word cooperate. This is in no sense a synergistic idea, meaning that God needs our help. Um, it is The work of salvation is still a monergistic work, a, a work alone of God. But when we say cooperate with God, what we're talking about is obeying him and doing his bidding in the church and not being a resistance uh, to the work of the gospel, but instead being a, a help. Now, just a little side note, this isn't in my notes, um, but there are a significant number of scholars that don't even believe in the idea of spiritual gifts. Um, that they, they don't like that category. 
Um, And so if you see somebody, if you read somebody that says, well, we we wouldn't categorize spiritual gifts, um, that's okay. And the reason is, is because the conclusion they come to is the same conclusion as us. Uh, They would just use different uh, language. They would say, well, they're not spiritual gifts. They're just, you know, particular talents that people have. Or it's a particular way of serving in the church. But the conclusions they come to are the same as ours. So I'm not concerned about that. One of my favorite professors in seminary doesn't believe in the distinction of spiritual gifts. He just says the church ought to serve and certain people are good at certain things. And, um, and I was in class when he said that and the student raised his hand and said, you mean like they're sort of gifted in that area? And he said, exactly. And everybody laughed. <clears throat> so we'll go ahead and go with the distinction, spiritual gifts, but they're specific ways that we are serving in the church. So there's a couple of types of spiritual gifts, and I know we went through this um, when we, I preached the short series on the Holy Spirit recently. The first type of spiritual gifts are gifts of men. These are men to equip the saints. Ephesians 4, 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. This is a very simple little uh, exercise in hermeneutics, in Bible study methods. Ephesians 4, 7, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then same word in Greek, four verses later, he gave the apostles. So what, what is the spiritual gifting? It's not abilities. The spiritual gifting in Ephesians 4 are gifts of men. And... So we have the, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors or shepherds, and, and the teachers. Um, apostles and prophets, we don't need them anymore. Anybody who says uh, that they're an apostle, just congratulate them on going to the best gym ever because they're 2,000 years old. And uh, that's not the case. We don't need any prophets because the prophecy of God is complete in the word of God. <clears throat> and um, I've met quite a few men uh, and a few women, uh, who claim to be prophets. And I always like to ask, uh, have you written any of your prophecies down? I did this with a guy just a couple years ago. Have you written any of your prophecies down? And he said, well, yeah, I have. And I said, hey, could I get a copy? Because I'd like to put those in the back of my Bible. And he even knew the verse. He said, well, Revelation says not to add to the... And I, so which one is it? We don't need apostles and prophets. We... Uh, we, we're done with that. Those aren't active offices. So what we have are, first of all, gifts of men. And this is important, and I don't say this to be self-serving, but somebody has to say it. If you, as a Christian, always remember that the shepherds that are placed over you are a gift of God, it changes your attitude toward the church. It changes your attitude toward your shepherds. Um, you notice that it doesn't say perfect gifts, uh, just gifts. And so uh, gifts of men. And the second type of gifts are abilities, given to each member of the body of Christ. What is the sense when we use the word gift? Well, there's two senses. The the first one is that it is something given by the Holy Spirit. It is a natural ability that, that you didn't develop, you didn't cultivate. Let me put it this way. There are no, for, and this is an area I'm familiar with, there are no gifted preachers who started off life completely uh, unable to even grasp what it means to to teach um every preacher i know when they were 10 years old were were you know teaching their stuffed animals or uh, they they had a propensity for being able to 
to share information. And then that gets honed further and further to the word of God. That's another topic for another day. So it's a gift from the Holy Spirit. The other sense we would say it's a gift um, has to do with how we feel about these gifts. Because they're gifts, they're given, there's no sense in which we should be prideful about these things. There's no sense in which we should, we should think one gift is better than another. Can you think of, in the charismatic movement, uh, people saying that one gift is better than another? Uh, the gift of tongues. Ironically, the Apostle Paul actually said that's the least of all the gifts. And so, um, so th- I think it's a useful word, gifting, and it's, it's something uh, that you just love to do. I, I enjoyed, uh, not so much anymore because he turned to the free grace movement, which I don't like, but um, I, I used to enjoy listening to Chuck Swindoll. He's not particularly deep, but he's so practical. And uh, he preached a short series on spiritual gifts. And he said, how do you know which one is yours? Try them all out. And the ones you're good at are yours. I think that's very practical. I think that's pretty true. There's some key passages on these abilities. I've listed those up there. Romans 12 is kind of our, our flagship passage. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 31 um, lists all the gifts, including the miraculous gifts. And then there's 1 Peter 4, uh, 10 and 11, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. So what types of abilities did we have in the early church? So we'll move on to just the abilities part, the gifts of the Spirit. Well, let's talk about uh, the miraculous gifts. The gifts of divine revelation and, and healing. These were, for example, divine revelation. This was uh, the gift of prophecy, receiving a word from the Lord and proclaiming it. Now, let me do a little side note here for a moment. You do see the idea of prophecy still put forward in the New Testament in use today. For example, uh, Romans 12 uh, it says that if you have uh, the gift of prophecy, you do so according to the measure of faith. In other words, uh, you, you proclaim the word of God according to the standard of the faith, according to the doctrines of grace. Um, in, uh, at the end of 1 Thessalonians, Paul tells them not to despise prophecies, um, which is quenching the Holy Spirit. So how do we understand that? It's important to understand that, that prophecy is a broad word that not only means to foretell something, but to forthtell something that is from God. A prophet in the New Testament time may foretell, let me tell you what God has told me, and I'm telling you in advance. Or they may forthtell. During the Reformation in, uh, in Switzerland in particular, there were groups of pastors that got together for what they called their weekly prophesying. And this was in the, in the late 1500s. What was their prophesying? Well, they picked somebody to preach a sermon from the Bible. And so they called that prophesying. So there's a broad sense, but when we're talking about uh, the, the gift of prophecy in the, as a miraculous gift, that is divine revelation. What about the gift of tongues, the gift of, of human languages? The gift of human languages is basically identical to the gift of prophecy just in a language you never learned. It's the same thing, receiving the word from God that you speak in a language you, you never learned. And then you had the gift of healing as well. And I'll talk about that more in a moment. Um, <clears throat> I don't think a lot of people had the gift of healing, and there's evidence that it was restricted almost solely to uh, the apostles. But that's a, that's a different topic. So those are divine revelatory gifts. God revealing himself in a way that's miraculous, that, is, uh, that, that we can't 
uh, replicate. Now, these were given temporarily in the apostolic era. What was the purpose? It was to confirm the authenticity of the apostles' message. And I, I think this makes total sense to us. That some guy walking into a city that has never before heard of Jesus Christ, and he goes into a, a synagogue, for example, and begins saying the Messiah has come to a bunch of Jews who don't believe that and who have been waiting for a Messiah for 1,500 years. And he keeps saying Messiah has come and arguing from the Old Testament. And they say, ah, I'm not sure about that. And then right after, the, right after the, the teaching time, he proceeds to heal the sick and raise the dead. Uh, next time he stands up to preach, what's he got? A big audience. Because his message has been authenticated. With New Testament revelation complete now, Scripture is the sole test of the authenticity of a man's message. And so uh, even today, there's what they call the signs and wonders movement that says that you need signs and wonders to authenticate the gospel. No, you don't. You need the word of God. It's very simple because signs and wonders can be faked. And I'll talk about that more in a minute. Uh, somebody told me once, uh, well, you can't fake speaking in tongues. It's like, that's easy. I mean, just listen to your 12-month-old child for a second and say what he said and you sound like you're speaking in tongues. Miraculous gifts can be counterfeited by Satan and so they could deceive even believers at times and so we we're really really careful with those but we don't need the confirming gifts they're not necessary anymore first Corinthians 13 8 through 10 and this will lead us to our first digression says love never ends as for prophecies they will pass away as for tongues they will cease as for knowledge it will pass away For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So let's do our first digression. What is the perfect? When the perfect comes, this is a huge debate even among cessationists, even among all who who believe that the spiritual gifts, the miraculous gifts have ceased. So let me give you basically the six major views and I apologize, that's just a small font, but um, here are six major views. That love itself is the perfect. That when the Corinthians are loving each other, they'll put away childish desires. Because that's what 1 Corinthians uh, 13 is basically about, is stop being childish and, and stop being unloving. And so uh, basically that view says, when love is perfected, then you won't need prophecies and you won't need tongues anymore. I, that sort of makes sense uh, a little bit, but it's a, kind of a stretch. The second view the completed, it's the completed canon of Scripture. And to be fair, there is a very strong cross-reference to this view. James one twenty five says, but the one who looks into the perfect law. And so there's a, there's a strong view that that is the completed canon of Scripture. That's the view I've had for, for many years. It's not the view I hold now. I'll explain that in a moment. A third view is that it is the mature church, that when the church has matured, this is kind of uh, view number three is similar to view number one, that the the church is now mature. Uh, The problem with that is when did that happen? Is there a time that Paul could pinpoint, okay, church at Corinth, you're now mature. And how would we compare them to the church at Ephesus, which started off with a bang and basically throughout history just degraded over time? Then the fourth view says that this is the believer's entrance into the presence of Christ. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. This has some merits to it. In the presence of Christ, will you need prophecies? Will you need tongues? Will you need new knowledge? No. You'll you'll be in the presence of the one who knows all things. 
Others say it's the return of Christ at the end of the age. Uh, that, the only difference between four and five is timing. Uh, number four happens at your death. Number five happens at the return of Christ. But basically, both of them are saying the same thing. When you're united with Christ, the perfect has come. And then the sixth view is the eternal state long after the millennium. There's actually quite a bit of evidence for the sixth view. And again, uh, that's still you being united with Christ. So how would we analyze this? Generally speaking, the last three have a lot in common and are probably more supportable in the context um, because all three of them have to do with being united with Christ. So I, I used to take the view that it was the completed canon of Scripture, but the fact is, is that it, um, the text doesn't say that. And so it's one of those times where you really like a view, but if you're going to be intellectually honest, you're not going to hold to it if there's no evidence for it. And so basically, there have been a lot of attempts to use 1 Corinthians 13.10 when the perfect comes to answer the when question as to when miraculous gifts ceased. But this verse doesn't answer the, the when question. It simply says that they will cease. So it's okay to, um, it's okay to decide that one verse doesn't answer the question fully. That, that's totally fine. But I think we'll see as we go here that the question gets answered in other ways and in other texts. So that's the first digression. What is the perfect? I would today have to hold to the perfect being most likely are being united with Christ. And so we'll, we'll let that be okay for now. Another digression. What was the purpose of the miraculous gifts? I've, I've touched on this briefly when we did an overview, but I want to uh, take a little more time on this. The first purpose is that it was a sign by God to authenticate his messengers during the time of transition from Israel alone to the church, which now includes Gentiles. And I mentioned this a, a week or two ago. But you have to understand, if you can put yourself in the place of a first century Jew, first century Jewish uh, settlement or town, they had no conception whatsoever of Gentiles being included in the kingdom of God. Now, this is not because that, not because that was what was true. It's because they didn't know their Bibles. They didn't see uh, all the ways that, for example, in the law of God, God commands sojourners. We're going to talk about this tonight. God commands that sojourners, strangers, be treated with hospitality and with love and with kindness and be included in Israel. And we've said this before, but generally speaking, in the Old Testament, the way you got saved was to become a part of Israel. And so uh, even the most well-meaning Jews in the first century, if they, if they thought, for a minute that a Gentile could become part of God's people, well, then uh, all the males have to be circumcised, you have to become law keepers, and you have to become a Jew. And you know from the book of Acts, we even had problems with that in the early church, that that saved Pharisees and uh, Judaizers, men who said that, that the law was still in effect, basically were preaching that you had to become a Jew first before you became a Christian. So put yourself in that mindset now you, all of a sudden you have these Jewish men named Peter and James and John saying, you don't have to become a Jew. You can come to faith in God straight through Christ. And so this would have been a tough pill to swallow. Um, but the sign gifts, the miraculous gifts helped make that transition happen. Jesus performed miracles. 
a, a large part of his reason for doing this is to authenticate uh, his own claims. And I put some references up there for you. But here's just one example. Acts 2, verse 22, Peter preaches, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man, listen to this, attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. What did Nicodemus say to Jesus when he came to him late at night? Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel in John 3, he said, we know that these works that you're doing can only be from God. That was the whole point. That was the whole point. The disciples were given similar power by Christ. They even got to practice a little bit. Uh, Matthew 10 and Mark 6, Jesus sends them out and he gives them a special enabling to be able to perform miracles so that they might uh, have a listening audience to their message. The book of Acts shows the apostles performing miracles and healings as signs to authenticate their message. And you see that in Acts 2, 4, 5, 6, 8, 14, 15. It's all over the place. And then you have uh, the gift of tongues in particular. 1 Corinthians 14 was a sign to the unbelieving world. And, and remember, in this, time, this day and age, uh, there was no Rosetta Stone. There were no language classes, per se, uh, unless you were really wealthy and you had a tutor. If you didn't know the language, you didn't know the language. And there was, there, there was only one way to learn, that was to be immersed in it. But all of a sudden, when you have a man coming and saying, I'm going to tell you how to know the God of the Bible, how to know the God who made all things, and a whole crowd of people are all hearing him say the same thing in their own language, uh, that you cannot argue with that. You can, and in fact, they would speak one, to one another. Uh, Acts 2, um, you see this scene of people saying, hey, he's, what language is he talking in? And so what an incredible, incredible gift to the world. Um, this is another topic for another day, but the gift of tongues basically undid the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel separated people by means of language, and the gift of tongues united them by means of a common language, which was the gift of tongues. So it was a sign to authenticate his messengers during the time of transition that Israel alone is not the, the sole source of salvation that now all Gentiles are welcomed into the kingdom. There's a second reason, second purpose. It was a means of further revelation to the church. It was a means of further revelation to the church, and this ceased to be necessary with the completed canon of Scripture. This is a, a long argument with a lot of facets, a ton of support from Scripture, but let me kind of summarize the argument here. New Testament prophecy had to be measured against apostolic teaching, the teaching of apostles. Um, as uh, Why is this? Well, false prophecy was immediately a real danger uh, in the first century church. And we already saw in the, in, in the first couple of missionary journeys of Paul, there are already people claiming to speak for Christ. And so um, we didn't have a New Testament yet. So the question always was, well, what did the apostles teach? What did the men who walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus for three and a half years and who were commissioned directly by Christ and who have the same powers that he seemed to have, what do they say? And so there was, there was a, a, a big emphasis on comparing to the apostles' teaching. Um, as a matter of fact, what does Acts 2.42 tell us? That the early church was immediately engaged in in Jerusalem. They were gathering together to hear the apostles' teaching. And, and get this, it wasn't just the summary of their teaching, it was to hear the teaching from the apostles. 
All these groups gathered together. Hey, who's coming to your house tonight? Well, James is. Who's coming to your house? Peter. Oh, he's, he, he's loud. We need a bigger house for him. And, and so they were the standard. They were the standard. This is why it's so important in the upper room discourse that Jesus promises the apostles that the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance all that I have taught you. I pray for that for all of you. Bring to their remembrance everything that I'm teaching. But I know that I hope that you leave every Sunday with one big idea. That's my hope for you. But that's why it was so important that the apostles had this ability to remember everything that Christ taught them. Meaning that the epistles of the New Testament, the written testimony of the apostles, are things that Christ taught them. And uh, I heard one uh, pastor say this, Jesus gave them the acorns and the epistles grow the oak trees. That, that, that uh, they are expanding, not on Christ, but they're expanding for us what Christ already taught them. So it was hugely important until we had the words of Christ in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, until we had the teaching of Christ given through the apostles in written form, the only standard was the apostles' teaching. So what do we do now? The apostles are all gone And so it's impossible to authenticate modern-day prophecies as actually being from God. This would be so simple. Wouldn't it be amazing to walk into your local Pentecostal church where there are uh, supposed prophecies happening all the time, to be able to walk in and say, I I have a friend here with me, and uh, his name is Peter. And he walked with Jesus all the day. Somebody prophesy. And then somebody stands up and starts saying something. And Peter says, are you kidding me? That's actually the opposite of what Jesus said. And so that would be great, but we don't have that anymore. And so what we do have instead is the written testimony of the apostles. This is why it's so important that all things are tested according to the word of God. Now, there's an argument, side note here. Uh, somebody says, well, I'm, but what I'm prophesying uh, lines up with the Bible. Well, then why don't you just teach what the Bible says? And most of the time it's not going to line up anyway. And then one more part of the summary here, we want to be careful that experience is not the judge of Scripture. Scripture is the judge of, of experience. I, you've heard people say, and I've, I've heard it said to me as well, but I know that God spoke to me. No, you don't. There's no way to verify that. That is not verifiable. You, there are so many other things that could be. Uh, there are people, because certain synapses in their brain don't work right, they hear voices on a regular basis. All that means is that there's recordings in their head that won't stop. And that's a neurological problem. And some of them either think they're hearing from demons and some think they're hearing from God. And so the ones that say they're hearing from demons, that's sad and we feel bad for them. The ones who say they're hearing from God, no, you're not. You're just hearing your Aunt Matilda playing over and over again in your brain something she said when you were six. It's not verifiable. And so uh, why would we, with a completed word of God, why would we mess with this idea, well, God told me? Um, And I want to caution you as well. I know sometimes we, uh, with very well-meaning intentions, uh, use phrases like, well, God told me this, or God really uh, impressed on me this. That's just a slipperier way of saying God told me something. Um, I believe God would have me too. I feel led to do something. That's something I've heard in our church here. I want to encourage you to be careful with that because uh, it's actually a way of, of manipulating others to say, well, I believe God would have me to tell you this. I believe God would have me to do this. 
great. Show me a scripture verse. Okay, well, the Bible says that uh, a, a brother who loves will rebuke another. Great, I can go with that. But I want to encourage you to be careful about anything that says uh, God God led me because there is, yes, the Spirit leads and we, we understand that. But do you always know when the Spirit is leading? I don't think we do. Uh, honestly, the Spirit leads in such ways that, that we're uh, not aware of. Uh, there's a, a pastor I, I uh, am friends with, but I've challenged him on this. He is covenantal uh, in his view. He is, he is not dispensational. And he has told me on more than one occasion that God led me to a view of covenant, covenant theology. And I've said, so does that mean I'm following Satan or does that mean that I'm not following the Lord? Because what you're claiming is to have received divine revelation that covenant theology is accurate. And that's, that's a major problem. That makes you a false prophet. So, no, I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm just saying God led me to. <laughs> I was like, no, you can't have it both ways. Um, so I want to encourage you uh, to think in terms of why are you doing something? Because the Bible says so. Because the Bible says so. Now, let's, let's uh, split hairs here. If you need to apologize to somebody and you're feeling the weight of conviction and you go to that person and you say, I feel like the Spirit of God is just killing me right now and I need to, yeah, I think we understand that. But generally speaking, in charismatic circles and even bleeding over into our circles, the use of God told me or God led me is generally to try to manipulate others to do what we want or to think that we're right. And so we just want to be really careful about that. You base your actions and your speaking on the word of God and the word of God alone because it is uh, very, very clear. So that little digression to a digression. One other reason for the miraculous gifts. It's a means to edify others in the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And when we say the manifestation, we're speaking specifically of the miraculous gifts. But this really bleeds over into today, doesn't it? Because the spiritual gifts we have today are still continuing in that purpose. They're a means to edify one another. Every time we read our Bibles, every time we see the nature of the apostolic uh, ministry, every time we read of the miracles of Christ, the miracles of the apostles, we're edified and we're encouraged. We don't need to see miracles. We have the record of them. And um, so just to be clear on this, the spiritual gifts are meant for the church. There are no spiritual gifts that are meant specifically for unbelievers. Now, some of them might say, well, what about uh, evangelism? What's the purpose of evangelism? To bring people into what? The church. And so it still goes back to the church. So all the spiritual gifts, miraculous or not, serve this purpose of, of building up the church. Why is it important that we be able to read about these miracles and, and rather than, than having to see them? Because this makes it to where we must come to faith in Christ by what? By faith. By believing the word of God. Um, I remember witnessing to a, a young man in, in college. And uh, I had my Bible open. And he said, he said, well, I don't care what the Bible says. I want to see a miracle. And he, I was like, well, like right now? And he turned around and he said, I, I want to see something come up out of that trash can. And I was feeling sick and I told him, this is bad. Well, something's about to go into that trash can if you keep us going this, down this road. But I, I told him, why don't you read about the miracles? 
And so I challenged him, and I remember he came back to me a couple days later, and he read the whole Gospel of Matthew. And I said, well, you read about the miracles. What did you think? And he said, well, I don't believe those could happen. Wait a minute. You just said if you saw a miracle that you would believe, and now you're saying they can't happen. Which one is it? So reading about the miracles, it puts you in a position to say, I must believe the Word of God. Romans 10, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of Christ. So that's why reading the miracles is fine. It is, it is the best thing. It puts you in the position of coming by faith. Well, let's get to the crux of this. Why do we believe that uh, miraculous gifts have ceased? Why do we believe this? New Testament prophets and prophecy are foundational, not continual. That's our first kind of uh, reasoning here. They're foundational, not continual. Ephesians 2.19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So there's a clear metaphor of construction here. And you have two parts to the construction. You have the foundation, and then you have the structure that's being built on the foundation. And you know this very functionally. There's a, there's a simple way to understand this, just grammatically. Grammatically, the foundation, past tense, has been built. And grammatically, the church is being built on that foundation. So we're not going to add to the foundation. The, the prophets, the prophecies, the, the apostles... That's the foundation. You don't ever, uh, you don't ever uh, look at your house and say, I think I'm going to add to the foundation. No, the foundation is there. You, you build on that foundation. So the first principle here, the first evidence is that New Testament prophets and prophecy are foundational, not continual. The second evidence is that miraculous gifts were the, for the purpose of uh, attesting to the message. We've already said this, but let me read to you Hebrews 2. Verses 3 and 4, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, in that context of Hebrews 2, 3, and 4, gifts of the Holy Spirit are speaking specifically of the miraculous manifestation gifts, the sign gifts. And notice the, the, the tense it is it has something that has already happened. God bore witness, past tense, which tells us, by the way, that by the time the book of Hebrews was written, the miraculous gifts, for the most part, were probably gone. There's a third line of reasoning. Miraculous gifts are described as an apostolic age phenomenon. And again, I, I would assert that the greatest miracle workers of all were the apostles. And I think that that is um, borne out. Jesus even told them, you'll do greater works than me. Why, why would Jesus say that? Well, Jesus did works uh, within a radius that you could walk to. And the apostles went all over the world um, healing and proclaiming the gospel. The church of Jesus Christ exploded through the work of the apostles. And so in that sense, they, they did things greater than Christ did. But 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. This is a pretty clear indicator that the apostles were the champions of the miraculous gifts. 
And that they, uh, even the Apostle Paul, he said, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Why would he speak in tongues more than anyone? Because he was going more places. And so it would be more necessary. And so it is very much an apostolic age phenomenon. Now there's two ways to understand this, and they both help our argument. Um, There's a very conservative understanding that only the apostles did these miraculous gifts. I I don't think you can quite go that far because um, Paul is giving instruction in, in 1 Corinthians uh, 12, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 is giving instructions to the church on the use of miraculous gifts. So I don't think we can go as far as to say they're only restricted the apostles to the apostles, but I think we can say that the apostles were the, were the champions, that they were the example. But the, the other way you can look at this is the signs of a true apostle, meaning that these sign gifts happened during the age of the apostles. Um, the signs that are like the, the, what the apostles are doing. And so it's very clearly an apostolic age uh, phenomenon. I, I'm going to add this one in here as uh, call it 3.5. And that is the evidence of the early church fathers. The evidence of the early church fathers, that, it's not biblical evidence. It's historical, but it helps our argument somewhat. Um, the early church fathers across the board, like there was no argument here, believed that the miraculous gifts had ceased. From 120, 130 AD or so on, the writings of the early church fathers, and and the reason we have so many of these is that they wrote extensively church to church. They wrote one another for um, the first hundred years after after the, the death of the last apostle. They wrote extensively, and they agree across the board that the miraculous gifts were done. And in fact, to anyone who claimed to speak in tongues, they called them heretics. They said, you can't be in Christ because those gifts are done. Little side note, you know what's so great about the writings of the early church fathers? It's one of the ways we have confirmed the total accuracy of our translation of the New Testament. Because the early church fathers writing back and forth wrote a lot of, of New Testament to one another and they repeat verbatim to the word every verse in the New Testament minus 11 verses. And so you have this incredible testimony that this is the word of God. So uh, 3.5 would be that early church fathers uh, believed the miraculous gifts had ceased. Who are you going to believe? A guy who was discipled by a guy who was discipled by John? Or somebody 2,000 years later who says, hey, I, I you know, had a vision of a pizza and a large Coke and I started speaking in tongues and so we're going to start a whole movement 2,000 years after the fact. I'm going to believe the guy who, uh, whose grandfather in the faith was an apostle. I'm going to believe him. And then one more line of evidence, the so-called miraculous gifts being practiced today in the charismatic movement, they bear no resemblance to the gifts described in the New Testament. They, they don't resemble them. Uh, the gift of tongues today now has been reinterpreted as a uh, prayer language. That's a big one. Um, is there, are there any examples in Scripture of people using the prayer language? There are no examples that, that I've ever found. Um, or reinterpreted as my own personal language with God, or, or it's not really a human language. Why did it have to be reinterpreted? Well, I've already told you that the Pentecostal movement in the early 20th century believed Rightly so, that the gift of tongues was human languages. Thus, they sent missionaries on ships all over the world who went and other gibberish to people, um, and it didn't work. 
So they came back and they said, well, we've got to alter our theology. Tongues now is a personal prayer language or, it's, or it can be gibberish. And some even try to use some language um, arguments from the New Testament. They don't hold water really at all. And so what's happening today? Can you find a verifiable instance anywhere on planet Earth of somebody, quote unquote, speaking in tongues and another person in the church standing up and saying, that's Croatian. I just came from there. That's never happened. It's not happening now. So there's no resemblance. So that's a, that's a big deal. Um, and, and in fact, even uh, reformed continuationists, uh, guys like Wayne Grudem, they admit what's happening today is not the same as what happened in the New Testament. Then they're not actually continuationists, are they? Because it's not continuing. Uh, prophecies are unconfirmed. They're almost always wrong. I mean, the charismatic church would be emptied of people if we used the same standard for a prophet today than was given in the, in the Torah, in the Pentateuch, that you stone the false prophet. I've personally seen two people who aren't even believers and who are horrible human beings have, uh, have a, a so-called prophet stand up and say, God told me you two are supposed to get married and have them get married and just have a disaster of a life. Because some idiot stood up in church and said, God told me this, and they just blindly went to the altar together. They needed, what they needed to hear was the gospel, not to hear that God is telling you to do this and that. Uh, slight side note, in the, in the churches that still supposedly use prophecy, you notice that they're, they're almost always positive. God told me that, that you're going to receive a million dollars in the next year. You don't ever hear somebody stand up and say legitimately, you are having an affair with your secretary and God is saying to stop or you're going to be disciplined. You know what that would do? If it was really true, that guy would like fall on his face in repentance. But that's not happening. And so uh, prophecies are unconfirmed. They're almost always wrong. It, it's a whole culture. Um, and by the way, prophecies in tongues, and this is sickening, are used as a measuring stick for faith. Well, why aren't you receiving the prophecy? Well, you must not have enough faith. You're not able to speak in tongues. Well, I'll pray that you have enough faith. And you have the the super Christians and you have the low-level Christians. And so what happens to the so-called low-level Christians? Well, they get sick of being low-level and they start speaking in tongues so that they can be accepted, so that they can be part of the gang. Uh, Healings. Do we believe that God heals? Absolutely. And you should pray for healing. I pray for healing all the time for people in our our congregation who are sick. But we don't have healers and we don't need them. Uh, Let me just give you an example. The Bible says that Jesus basically healed every single sick person in the region of Galilee. It was a little tiny preview of what the millennial kingdom is going to be like. That there's no sickness because he heals everybody. He would go all day long, everybody that comes, healed, 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 over and over again. No effort. Uh, There's never a sense that you see Jesus expending effort. There's only one time that we ever see him expending effort, and that is in prayer. But cast out demons, oh, 6,000 of them, be gone. No big deal. If that was happening today, if healers were real, and you fill a stadium with 50,000 people and 25,000 of them are sick 
or have a disease or have some sort of ailment. What do you think ought to happen if the gift of healing is, is true? They ought to be lining up and just going through and, and getting healed and coming to faith in Christ, which was the goal in the early church. That was the goal. It was always to bring them to faith in Christ. What do you get now? You get a dozen or so unconfirmed healings and they have to be really, really um, well planned and well chosen. Um, there are all kinds of studies done on this. There are people that have gone to healing rallies uh, for years and years and written about, written about it. What you don't see are the hundreds and hundreds of disappointed people who are turned away and who are threatened with lawsuits if they ever publish uh, the fact that they came to this. Um, that is verifiable. Benny Hinn, he's the worst at this. He threatens people with lawsuits if they ever publish the fact that they left unhealed. Why? Because it stops the money from coming in. And so if, if there was really somebody with a gift of healing, if I had the gift of healing, I wouldn't be here. I'd be at the hospital with gospel tracts in the Bible going from room to room to room. And I don't know, three floors of a hospital, I'll bet I could empty it in a day easily. <clears throat> so that's not happening. Why do we believe the, the miraculous gifts have ceased? New Testament prophets and prophecy are foundational. Miraculous gifts were the purpose of attesting to the message they're described as an apostolic age phenomenon. Uh, church history bears out that the early church fathers didn't believe the miraculous gifts were continuing and the gifts being practiced today in the charismatic movement completely are not what was happening in the New Testament at all. So let's talk about healing and then we'll be done today. What about James 5, 14 and 15? Is there anyone among you sick? Let them call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So what does this mean? In this church, God bless him, uh, one time a, a man brought me a little thing of oil. And it was olive oil you can buy at Walmart. And he said, I, I want the elders to anoint me with oil and pray for me. And so we met him halfway. We said, we'll be happy to pray with you. Pray with you. I'm not going to dump oil on your head. And so we prayed for him, but this was, his, this was his, uh, his text. I have no problem doing that. But what is this really talking about? Well, context is everything here. Here's some clues. The context is a believer being forgiven of sin. That's the context. The elders are involved not as somehow super prayer warriors, but as spiritual authorities who have witnessed unrepentant sin in this person's life. That's why they're involved. Um, anointing with oil was an act of mercy. Uh, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a magical healing agent. It was, it was sort of like saying, let the elders come and bring Tylenol and bring a cold cloth and pray over him. It was very, very practical. It wasn't a magical healing thing. And I feel bad for the billions of dollars spent on uh, magic oil from, the, from Israel. And uh, for only thirty nine ninety five, you too can have oil that was squeezed from the olives right in the Garden of Gethsemane. No, it wasn't. The example of Elijah is given in the same text praying on Israel's behalf to have the drought ended. This is given right after it. This is a prayer for forgiveness and restoration. And so 
that illustration proves a couple of things. The first conclusion is this is a sick Christian who knows of unrepentant and unconfessed sin, and the elders probably know of it as well. In other words, this may be a person who's been disciplined out of the church. They're sick at home, and they have, by God's grace, come to the conclusion that this sickness is a result of the fact that I have rebelled against my God. And they see it as a mercy, and they've called for the elders of the church. Why? Because he's going to confess his sin, and he's going to repent. And the elders, what would they pray? Well, very naturally, they would pray, Lord, if this illness is due to this man's sin, he's repented, would you please relieve him of it? And what does it say? Well, he'll be healed because it was directly related to his unrepentance. Second conclusion, the gifts of healing are not in operation, but God does hear and answer the prayer of faith in accordance with his own perfect will for the sick and for the suffering and for the afflicted. Is it okay to pray for healing for the sick? You should. I I would think you less of a Christian if you didn't. Why not? God is our heavenly father. And as one of my uh, boys told me when he was little, um, he said, it never hurts to ask. It never hurts to ask. So what does this, what does this do for us? By the way, just a little side note here. When you are suffering, that's always a great opportunity to confess sin, isn't it? You, you cover that base. You know, Lord, I, I don't know why you're bringing me to this point. And I don't know whether this is some sort of discipline because I'm unrepentant or I don't know what it is, but I'm going to confess every sin I can think of because I want to cover that base. And I think it's a tremendous opportunity to confess sin where we're humbled. Um, I worry for Christians who have really never had big problems in their lives because there's a certain sense in which their spiritual growth has never gotten to a certain point. So um, we're thankful for those... um, those problems real quick two more things and we'll be done the romans 12 list prophecy non-revelatory proclamation of scripture with an element of calling to action uh, i you could say preaching is a is a synonym for prophecy service laboring in all respects in the church teaching that's the ability to convey truth clearly Exhortation, coming alongside one another. Giving, the extra measure of desire and the means to give. I love what Chuck Swindoll said about this. I, this series he preached years and years ago was impactful to me. Um, he said, uh, giving seems to come with the gift of getting as well. And that has been true in the church over the years. In fact, uh, 1, Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 6 commands those with wealth in this world to be extra generous because that's why God gave it to them in the first place. Leadership. A God-given ability to lead, to administer in the church. And then mercy, uh, serving people, uh, serving the needs of people very sensitively. And so this is a great set of gifts. I think this is a good standard. We might add a little asterisk because there's one gift that sort of overlaps as a gift slash person. And that would be, we might call the gift of evangelism. You remember we said a while ago, back in Ephesians 4, that God gave the gifts of the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists. It does seem that there are some in the church with a particular bent toward evangelism. My guess would be it's not pushed too hard in Scripture because God wants all of us to share our faith. But there are those that seem to just have a particular bent toward that, and we're, we're thankful for that. And then one last thing. One of the things I love about the Apostle Peter is that he has the ability to take complex subjects and boil them down to simple explanation. First Peter 4, 10 and 11. He summarizes all the gifts. 
Some people talk and some people do stuff. There's the speaking gifts and the serving gifts. Think about it. Prophecy, speaking, service, doing, teaching, speaking, exhortation, speaking, giving, doing, leadership, speaking and doing, mercy, doing, and maybe some speaking because you speak merciful words. So some of you are speakers, some are servers, some of you are both and you mix them together. And so before we start uh, handing out 17-page spiritual gift inventories where you get a little certificate, oh, these are my gifts, I'm going to put it up on the wall and not use them. Um, just know who you are. Are you somebody who likes to talk one-on-one? It's a gift of exhortation. Are you somebody who likes to talk to a lot of people? That's teaching. Somebody who likes to talk to a lot of people and you have a fire burning in your soul to make sure that they walk with Christ? Prophecy. Are you somebody that um, everything, you, everything you touch turns to gold and you, you have all this money? You, I don't even know how I got this. That's a gift of giving. Uh, if somebody that uh, every time you turn around, there's 15 people walking behind you. You're a leader. Um, every time you see a people need, somebody hurting, oh, your heart just breaks and you want to go hold their hand and you want to be with them. That's a gift of mercy. And so it's very simple. You just think about how did God make me? And I think you can figure that out in a minute. And do those things. Well, we have to be done. We, um, there's one more slide. I'll just leave it up for a minute. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to you as a new covenant believer. And you can look at that or get it online. Um, I'm going to pray for us. And then let's just leave that, Mark, let's leave that slide up for a couple minutes. If anybody wants to copy it down. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the spiritual gifts given to us by the, the Holy Spirit. They really make life in the church so joyful. So wonderful, and you have made us useful to the kingdom. You have no need of us. You have no worries that you can't bring the kingdom of Christ in without our help. And yet you have gifted us, Lord, to be those that proclaim the scriptures, those who serve in the church laboring, those who teach the word of God, those who exhort one another and come alongside and put their arms around each other, those who give and who, who um, support the work of the ministry, those who lead others to do the same and those who are merciful and who give us um, that kindness and that soft touch that we all need, a soft touch representing God. So we thank you for these gifts. May we be faithful to use them in our body. We pray in Christ's name, amen.